Hello and welcome everyone to the first episode of the STEMcast podcast. This is a brand new podcast created and hosted by a team of undergraduate students at the University of Ottawa. The goal of our podcast is to create an accessible resource for students at all levels of STEM to be mentored by leading professionals and advance their careers. Your hosts for today's podcast are Albert and myself, Sanji. Okay, so the heart is obviously one of the body's most important organs, but it's not perfect. And when things do go wrong, as they sometimes do, we need highly trained professionals to help fix it. And today we'll be interviewing one of these professionals, somebody who does just that. That's Dr. Chen. Um, and he agreed to be here with us to tell us about his journey and his career in the field of medicine. Um, and we're excited to have him. So good evening, Dr. Chen. How are you? Good evening. I'm very, very well. How are you? We're doing great. Yeah, we're great. Perfect. Yeah. So, Sanji, pleasure uh, to meet you. Yeah. Thank you. It's a pleasure to meet you. So why don't we start off with a brief introduction. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure thing. So I am an anesthesiologist. What that means is I'm a physician that specializes in providing care in and around the time of surgery. The easy way to think about it is the person that puts you to sleep for an operation, but the uh, better way to think of it is the person who actually uh, guides you through the whole uh, process from meeting you ahead of time and deciding whether or not there are any risks in your surgical journey that can be reduced or modified, taking care of you during an operation, and then taking care of you afterwards. So, so that's what I do. And within that larger special of anesthesiology, I have coned down to take care of people only before and after heart surgery, particularly. And that uh, journey, I suppose, uh, starts in high school. I had a focus in the sciences, which had led to an undergraduate degree in uh, biochemistry. And I was lucky enough in that to have been admitted to medical school. Uh, after medical school, uh, a undifferentiated year, like a stem cell year, where I was called an intern. And after internship, uh, specialty training in anesthesia. And after specialty training in anesthesia, some time away from practice in what's called a fellowship, where you develop the subspecialty focus. And then... Uh, continuing uh, professional development in order to maintain uh, competency and currency in that. Great. So what does a typical day look like for you? Okay, that's a good question because I have my feet in two camps. Uh, number one is intraoperative anesthesia and the other is postoperative critical care. And I'll start with one day and I'll uh, then describe the other day. If I'm caring for somebody who requires cardiac surgery, my day actually starts quite early. I'm in the hospital a few heartbeats before 7.30. And the reason being is that we do what we call a checklist at 7.30. So at 7.30 exactly, the whole team meets and we uh, introduce ourselves and we uh, listen to a description of the patient. And then you could imagine our surgical friends, uh, my anesthesia team, uh, Perfusion, who runs the heart-lung machine, and our nursing friends all 
uh, describe their concerns for the surgery and then uh, we come to a unified plan and then we activate the plan. So in order to do that, you can imagine all the anesthesia equipment is checked, uh, the medications are ready and so on. I would have met the patient the day before uh, if they're admitted in hospital. So my day actually starts the night before. Uh, the patient would roll into the operating room maybe by quarter to eight and at the Heart Institute, we would do typically two uh, operations in a single day. And then uh, my day would probably end about seven o'clock at night, maybe a little bit later, and then I would come home. During the sort of uh, 7.30 to seven day, I would be um, spending most of the day watching how the patient's heart, lungs, and other body system reacted to the stress of surgery and trying to reduce that stress if I could. So that's my, um, that's my operating room day. If I'm an intensive care unit doctor, the day starts early as well. It starts about 7.30. And at 7.30, what I would do is I would hear the story of what happened overnight for the team that stayed in hospital overnight. Uh, it's lucky that most of the times I don't have to go into hospital. Once um, the story is described, we would, as a team, uh, solve problems that arose overnight immediately that needed solving. And then after that, uh, the list of patients in the ICU would be divided amongst all the team members and off I would go to see patients. And here, my behavior is very much like a family doctor in that I would meet the patient and I would uh, see if I can determine what their problems are. I would come up with a plan. I would activate that plan. And then I would go and see if that uh, plan worked. The difference between me and a family doctor is sometimes my patients are on life support and can't speak to me. And so the communication would be through uh, testing and examination. But uh, I would go from patient to patient uh, basically meeting a new patient and then trying to figure out their problems. And their problems could be uh, very, very intense, or they could be quite typical for somebody recovering from heart surgery. Yeah, thanks for that. Really uh, interesting insight there. Um, so what do you like most about medicine and your discipline and your job in specific? I represent a very, very small corner of medicine and within anesthesia, an even smaller corner. So what I like about what I do is the interplay between humans and technology. Um, it's, uh, it may sound coarse, but most of my patients are unconscious. Most of my patients can't speak to me and most of my patients can't tell me how they feel. I have to make uh, uh, educated guesses based on instrumentation that I have. But what I really do like is that link. How can I use technology to uh, care for a patient? So it's almost turning a person into a cyborg if they're on life support. They might have a, uh, an impeller to support their heart. They might have all their blood taken out of their body and put through uh, microscopic filters in a dialysis membrane. So it's, uh, uh, I really enjoy that. The other thing that I like in my particular specialty is most biological processes are modeled. So rather than having a memorized schema of how things work, uh, most of the processes that I have have a mathematical model. And I treat the patient according to that model. If the model doesn't work, then you might imagine that I might uh, tweak it a little bit. I might add more variables or take away variables that don't make sense. 
And so to understand uh, somebody and being able to construct a, a rugged model uh, of their care mathematically is very pleasurable to me. Um, do you have any, uh, do you think there are any misconceptions about your field of work in general? Oh, absolutely. Um, for people within medical training, uh, there is the misconception that anesthesia is very much a procedural art, meaning that I do a lot of things with my hands. And certainly for some anesthetists, that's true. Uh, using uh, ultrasound to guide needles very, very close to nerves in order to uh, reduce sensation for a part of the body for surgery is, uh, without question, highly skilled. Um, there are other anesthesiologists who are equally expert at placing uh, uh, tubes and wires in certain places in order to provide uh, good care. But when you look at my day, and if you actually step back, particularly for me as a teacher, there might be days, if not weeks, in which uh, I actually don't touch the patient myself while I'll be supervising trainees, everybody from medical students through uh, subspecialty fellows and doing the actual technique. I'll of course introduce myself to the patient and let them know that I'm in charge of their care, but I may not actually do anything with my hands. The other uh, misconception of my art is some people feel that the intraoperative phase where the patient's under general anesthetic is, uh, is a pay, uh, uh, I guess a phase where there's uh, less cognitive load for the anesthetist. The anesthetist uh, uh, stops paying attention and uh, uh, may drift away, do crosswords, uh, Sudoku, uh, surf the internet. Where is that's quite the opposite. The um, things can change uh, very, very quickly, and sometimes the clues to those change, particularly if the patient's getting sicker, could be really subtle, and you end up having a heightened state of awareness at everything that happens around you, looking, listening, even feeling or smelling. It's, um, uh, you're actually on alert, just waiting for things to go wrong. Um, you mentioned teaching, and do you want to talk a little bit about who do you teach and sort of that teaching aspect of your career? Absolutely. Um, it's actually unusual in an academic center to be labeled as a clinician teacher. And so, yes, I've published some stuff, but that's done out of love. And uh, yes, I'm part of committees and that's, uh, that's done out of duty. But what I was uh, hired to do is to teach. And so I've had the privilege of teaching uh, undergraduate medical students. Uh, I've even had the uh, absolute pleasure of teaching uh, allied health professionals, uh, paramedics, nurses, respiratory therapists who are in their own programs. Uh, the bulk of my teaching is done for residents. So they've finished medical school and yet they still are not fully licensed as physicians as they develop more and more anesthetic skills. So that's uh, the bulk of my teaching. And the teaching in anesthesia looks very much like, uh, maybe an apprenticeship would be a better way of looking at it. You can imagine the apprentice needing to do uh, a lot of work that uh, seems quite uh, simple and repetitive initially until they can build up a certain cadre of skills. And then as their skills, uh, become more and more refined then from easier repetitive tasks they start to get more and more challenging and more creative tasks and so the teaching i do for my residents 
feels a lot like mentoring a, an apprentice. And then the teaching I do for uh, postgrads, in other words, fellows, that would be done at quite a high level. Most of that teaching would be done in uh, sort of question challenge way, uh, asking them how they might uh, manage a particularly difficult situation and review their rationale, review their mathematical model, if you will, and see if it meets uh, published guidelines, see if it meets uh, my experience. And then I do teaching outside of the academic milieu. I'm part of uh, professional societies and I will teach uh, at conferences and courses. In fact, just this uh, last month, I had the, uh, the, the fun of teaching virtually in Belgium. Uh, I was invited by uh, a society to give a two talk. So you can imagine that those talks were done virtually. That's really cool. It's interesting how you teach all over, all over the world. And you mentioned teaching, you mentioned uh, some committees. Are there any other aspects of your job apart from just the clinical side and the teaching side too? Absolutely. Uh, in academic medicine, so I'm part of the University of uh, Ottawa. It's, uh, it's my home. Uh, I train in Toronto, but I was recruited here. The academic medicine stands on three important pillars. One is teaching, uh, one is research, and the third is what I'd like to call high-level administration or leadership, if you will. And each anesthetist uh, in an academic center uh, probably has a Venn diagram with larger or smaller circles in each one of those milieus, but you'll find that most of us participate in all three. Um, no, I, I wouldn't be a, a principal investigator. I wouldn't be the person uh, seeking grants. However, if I was asked to participate in research that uh, was part of my skill set, of course I would. Uh, I would do everything to support my university that way. Um, I, uh, from a research point of view, I also am a guest reviewer for my professional journal. And although not research per se, it asks you to have a certain familiarity with uh, what research is. And that's the, the research side. Uh, from the teaching side, so yes, there's the teaching that everybody can imagine how I might stand in front of a whiteboard or how I might have somebody at my side as an apprentice. The other teaching would be uh, education, so uh, uh, working on uh, textbook chapters or working on review articles where you can summarize uh, a lot of literature to a more digestible teaching point. And so that would be another sort of uh, uh, aspect of the third leg that I call administration or, or high level leadership. So this is where uh, professional societies in anesthesia have called beyond the mask. So representing uh, our science or our specialty at other tables. So I might sit with cardiologists and cardiac surgeons to help them devise policy, just to offer them a different point of view. Thank you for that. Really interesting. Um, you talked about one of those three pillars being research. And do you know any, is there any fundamental research that's currently happening in the field of cardiology that you think will transform our understanding of cardiology field? There are uh, many things. So uh, you, you're right to mention cardiology because cardiac anesthesiologists tend to look like cardiologists. Many of us are imagers. Uh, many of us uh, are able to provide high-level ultrasound skills. And in all fields, I can see our, uh, our science accelerate. The thing that to me is the most exciting that I've seen in cardiology, cardiac surgery, and cardiac anesthesia is the ability to do heart repairs with smaller and smaller incisions. 
when I first trained, it would be quite typical for somebody to have an incision through their sternum. It starts just to, uh, below uh, the neck at the top of the sternum and the incision almost stopped uh, just a few centimeters uh, north of their belly button. It's a really big incision and uh, of course the sternum would be split. It's uncomfortable and as uh, technology has been integrated into surgery and cardiology we have now seen things like valve replacements and repairs through small punctures in the leg uh, by having either a tool that has been miniaturized or a, uh, a valve that is folded or origami style and deployed inside the heart. It, it really has changed the way that we think about uh, cardiac surgery, cardiology, and recovery. Uh, you can imagine the anesthetic for a small puncture in the leg would be completely different than the anesthetic for a sternum splitting operation. And yet the person has the same disease in each side there are uh, ways that cardiologists used to treat the patient and with increased technology and modernization uh, that treatment is now smaller or once again through small punctures in the leg and uh, the anesthetic science has had to meet the uh, the increase in uh, surgical science yeah and is there any research right now that's happening at the uh, Heart Institute where you work that you think is interesting? Oh, absolutely. The, the Heart Institute is a tremendous uh, research powerhouse. Uh, if you're to stand in front of the Heart Institute uh, at its parking lot and look south at the front doors, you'd see a, a beautiful sloped glass uh, facade on your uh, left side is where patient care is being done. And the whole building that's to the right, that facade is actually a research institution. And everything that is done in that building is to improve patient care. Uh, we can start from the uh, sort of head and work south. Uh, there was research done on things like addictions and smoking sensation, which has been uh, really quite tremendous. There's been research looking at how patients uh, see themselves and how they can prehabilitate before even coming into the operating room. There is research ongoing in surgery and surgical techniques and medications used in and around the time of surgery. There is uh, cardiology research. We have uh, literally dozens of uh, clinician scientists and scientists doing research. One of the things that's been a, a, a renewed focus is women's health in cardiology and cardiac surgery. It's, uh, it's perhaps uh, shocking to say, but uh, until very recently, all of us in terms of clinicians were taught that the symptoms for heart attack were something. And then we've come to understand that women are different than men and their symptoms may be different. And because of different symptoms, there may be uh, delays in presentation, uh, delays in therapy. We also looked at outcome for uh, cardiac surgery and cardiology procedures on women versus men, and they're different. And they may be different because research in the past has not divided the two, uh, the two genders. What else have we done? We've done uh, neat imaging studies. Um, you know, what the Heart Institute does per year fills a, fills a notebook. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned research because I also like did research this summer and past summer at the Heart Institute as well. But what are some cutting edge technologies that you've used yourself at the Heart Institute? Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, although I am an anesthetist, I have been con uh, confused with an imager, which means that somebody who spends most of the time acquiring and interpreting image. And uh, it's something that I do while taking care of the patient simultaneously. So in that way, perhaps I'm more like a point of care provider. The instrument that I use the most is an echocardiogram. Uh, echocardiogram and so it's an ultrasound of the heart whether provided with a probe on the person's chest or with a camera that's inserted through their mouth that lies behind their heart in the esophagus the technology that i have right now allows me to acquire 3d images of the heart so i'm acquiring instead of a slice of the heart a 3d data set that i can slice um, in post-processing the amount of information in that 3D data set is really quite fantastic because as you think of it, if I have 3D changes over time, I really have a 4D data set. So initially, our understanding of that has been to slice it into reference 2D images that we've come to understand. But I think as we move forward, one of the things that is quite obvious is there's more, um, there are more answers in there than we actually think. Uh, to imagine um, a volume pixel or a voxel, uh, to be able to follow a voxel, whether that's uh, a theoretical particle of blood or more important to me, a piece of hard muscle through three dimensions would be really neat. If you model the left heart as a cone, uh, the cone would have a base of a certain diameter, the cone would have a height. It's a, it's a remarkably easy model. As the cone would change in height, you could imagine that it would change in volume. That's one way of looking at the left heart. But the left heart is actually built of a bunch of muscles in a spiral fashion, and the spirals actually cross each other. So when you think of the true shortening of a myocyte, it's not gonna be in a conical model where there is sort of longitudinal strain or radial strain or circumferential strain. It, uh, uh, I'd love to be able to think about the actual 3D motion of each myocyte within the heart. The other thing that's uh, uh, coming up quickly is using uh, AI to help uh, interpret imaging quickly. And if you can imagine that if I were able to acquire a reference image and leave that image running throughout the operation. And instead of having me look at it continually, uh, have that data set analyzed by AI and have certain limits when it's outside of those limits uh, for me to be flagged about if something happened to turn imaging into a monitor with AI would be, uh, would be a lot of fun. And some of that is uh, stuff that's being worked on already. I think it's really fascinating what you're talking about with all this research. And clearly when it comes to research, but I think also in medicine in general, um, there's so many different professions that contribute to all of this. And as you mentioned, you're sort of in this one corner of it. There's so yes. much. So uh, could you talk a little bit about what professions you think often collaborate when it comes to patient care and operations? Um, and how do those work together? Absolutely. Uh, the, the easiest to think in terms of professions, uh, anesthetists work side by side with surgeons. So surgeons are doctors as well, but they're not physicians. So after medical school, yes, they are a doctor. They've chosen the path of being a surgeon where your training really examines uh, how to restore functional anatomy. 
so problem solving, but mostly based on structure rather than uh, physiology per se. Uh, they're also very intelligent physiologists and good doctors, but they're surgeons. So I would work side by side with a surgeon. And in fact, uh, the easy relationship to be is I'm essentially married to the surgeon that uh, I'm working with. Uh, we're a team. I work with nurses. Uh, uh, they uh, stand beside me in the intensive care. They provide the uh, the bulk of the care, the heavy lifting, where it's safe. As an anesthetist, because uh, I work with quite a bit of technology in the operating room, and as an intensivist, uh, once again, a lot of technology, and a lot of the technology has to do with breathing. And so the Allied Health uh, Partners respiratory therapists are people that uh, in many ways look like anesthetists. They seem to act like anesthetists, and we see them as partners in care. There are specially trained respiratory therapists who act as uh, physician extenders, in other words, anesthesia assistants, and uh, those would be other people that I work with. As I step further backwards, I work very, very closely with biomedical engineers. Uh, my equipment is uh, expensive, it's valuable, and uh, it requires uh, an important amount of preventative maintenance, and it's with uh, continual feedback to my, my biomedical friends that that maintenance can be done well. I can go on. I, I work with pharmacists daily. I work with occupational physical therapists daily. Um, uh, stepping outside of the uh, sciences perhaps just a little bit. I work with uh, uh, chaplains, social workers regularly. It, um, it's, it's a big team. And I think that's the beauty of medicine, how everybody collaborates together. And I think that's what makes patient care uh, so robust and um, so effective. Uh, my next question is uh, a little bit you know, deviating off a bit. Um, what are some non-research trends that you're seeing in the medical field or in the field of anesthesiology that you're in that you find interesting or that you find exciting? Yeah, there, um, there are a lot of... Uh, I'm not going to call them non-research because the the information still needs to be distributed to the public, the patients, and one of these uh, elements is understanding what it means to have risk. We are um, we we as humans aren't that good at understanding numbers and. Uh, what does uh, one in 10,000 mean? What does 1% mean in terms of risk? And being able to better communicate with patients is, uh, is important. And one of the risks that has not been part of the conversation in and around surgery to date is, what does it mean to survive the surgery but not going home? And so the surgery was a success, but what does it mean to uh, have an operation when you've come from home and have to leave to a long-term care home, uh, that sort of thing. So it, it's perhaps not the bench science that most people think of research, but it's really, really important. We're also starting to understand a different um, appearance of risk or a, a different physiology of risk beforehand in the, in the human that's frail. Uh, it might be somebody with a uh, a lot of different diseases. It might be somebody who has organ dysfunction so that they are able to do less, but that frail phenotype is something that we're starting to recognize better. And one of the exciting things about anesthesia, once again, outside of 
the uh, operating room is our role in defrailing uh, a patient if we can. Um, now, a lot of people who are going to be listening to our podcast, they are high school students or undergrad students like myself. What advice would you give them for students who are aspiring to go into the field of medicine? Absolutely. That's a, that's a wonderful question. Um, the easiest uh, metric in terms of medicine is to think about the application process. And I'll just go through that bit. And the application process is uh, based in part on academic success. And so that would be important. But the other part that's um, perhaps harder to define is the preparedness for medicine, knowing what it means and knowing why you think that that's you. There are so many ways of describing a, a medical career. It's, it's almost like saying science or it's almost like saying engineering. Um, uh, an electrical engineer's uh, career may look very, very different than a materials engineer. And a materials engineer may look very, very different from a civil engineer and so on. It's a, it's a huge field, but knowing what is uh, engineering general. So, it, so to me, medicine and engineering actually share a relationship in that they're both applied sciences. Uh, yes, there are physicians that do pure uh, bench science and surgeons as well, but it really is an applied science. So, so know how that fits. The preparedness is important and the... Um, it, it's hard to train for maturity, but you can imagine how that uh, would be a metric for your application process. And then lastly, I would think about that the candidate has uh, some sort of mechanism that allows them to have a sustainable medical career. And so, uh, uh, yes, a candidate could be looking forward to an MD-PhD with a uh, plan of working 120 hours a week and then just not eating and not doing any exercise and, and making sure that they concentrate on this goal, but that's not sustainable. And part of it is understanding the, the individual and how can you have a sustainable career in uh, your medical education and then your uh, career as a physician or surgeon. Um, so it looks like those were all the questions we wanted to ask you. This has been so insightful for me, and I'm sure for Albert as well. Like, we definitely learned a lot more than we thought, and it's just been a great time talking to you. Um, thank you very much for taking time out of your day, um, so busy day, as you described, to help support our podcast and our audience as well. So thank you so much. You're so welcome. It's an absolute pleasure. As for those of you at home, we hope that you enjoy our first episode and learn a little bit more about what a day in the life of a cardiac anesthetist looks like. And we hope to see you guys all in two weeks for our next episode. Have a great day, everyone.